Good morning, everybody. Um, before we get into this morning's message, uh, we want to actually take a minute and acknowledge something um, that happened yesterday. Uh, many of you may have seen the news that came out last night or early this morning that um, in Buffalo, New York, there was yet another horrific act of terrorism. Um, that uh, there was a, a young man, 18-year-old white supremacist man, who went into a grocery store uh, armed and gunned down. Uh, th uh, 13 people were shot, uh, 10 of whom died, and it was a racially motivated attack against the African-American community. He actually traveled 200 miles from his home to come to this community to commit this act of terrorism. And um, yet again, we stand here completely uh, dumbfounded by the senselessness and the horror of such acts of violence. And as a church, we believe that God has called us, that the gospel compels us to be people who live in an extraordinarily contrary way of living, where the world sets itself up according to all kinds of ways of dividing. We believe that God has given us the ministry of reconciliation, racial reconciliation, ethnic re reconciliation across Every area where the enemy would seek to divide human pe humankind, God has called the church to be healing communities of hope that bring reconciliation. And so right now we are in a space of standing where Jesus calls the church, which is to mourn and grieve with those who are mourning and grieving, and to also allow the anger that is within many of us to rise up in the direction of crying out to God for justice in our nation and in our community and in our world. So Kara oversees prayer in our church, um, all of the prayer meetings, uh, particularly the Thursday morning justice prayer meeting. And this is something that we go after every single week on Thursday mornings. We contend particularly for racial reconciliation and justice um, in our world and here in Vancouver. So I've invited Kara to come and lead us in prayer. The mic's right down there by the speaker. And will you um, just posture yourself to agree in prayer with Kara as we cry out to God for mercy? All right, church, uh, however you want to posture yourself right now. So come, Holy Spirit. Jesus, we want to declare your lordship in the midst of tragedy and evil. You reign supreme. So Jesus, we ask that you would come and reveal who you are in the community in Buffalo and around the neighboring communities and all across New York, all across the East Coast. Holy Spirit, we ask that not only you would bring comfort and the peace that passes understanding to those who mourn, but that you would rise up with justice and righteousness 
God, thank you that you reign far above all that is evil in the world and that we serve a holy, a righteous, a God who weeps with us, a God who sees the evil in our world and desires to make all things new by drawing men, women, and children to their their hearts to you. So God, we ask that you would come and the fear of the Lord would descend upon the evil. We ask that the fear of the Lord would come and rest on Buffalo. That your, your fear would draw men, women, and children to you. And that your Holy Spirit would come with comfort, with peace. That you would raise up your church, God. Raise up your children to come and minister to those who are hurting. To be peacemakers to call for your justice and your righteousness to come down. God, we ask for healing in your community over there, but even more so we ask that your righteousness, that your salvation would come in that area, that people who harbor hate in their heart for others, no more, God, that you would grip the hearts of men and women to fall down in repentance and declare you as the most high king. God, and you would heal and you would make all things new in that community. And God, burden our hearts as we go on this week into the month, God, that you would put a weight on our heart to cry out for your justice, for your righteousness, for your salvation, for the truth of who you are to come over our nation, God. And God, when we don't know how to pray, thank you that we have a Holy Spirit. Thank you that you groan with words that we don't even know, God. So thank you, Jesus. Jesus, thank you that you intercede day and night. That you do not turn a blind eye. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. We ask that you would just go. That your spirit would just go over that community. Bring reconciliation, renewal, and hope, and strength and comfort and repentance, God. Amen. Thank you, Kara. All right. Thank you, everybody. Well...
We're going to dive into this morning's text. If you have your Bible or you, have, or you see one of the black Bibles in front of you on the pew, you can go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 5. Today we are continuing in a series that we began a handful of weeks ago, uh, walking through the Sermon on the Mount. We've called it the good life because we believe that the life that Jesus uh, depicts in the Sermon on the Mount, the way that he calls his followers to sort of be in the world, really is the best way of living. It's this kingdom that is upside down and contrary to so many of the things that the world values or many of our expectations of what our lives should be like. And he says, this is how you find true life with me. And so we are today now going to be walking through one of the most challenging parts of Jesus's sermon. We are talking about, as, re- as Aaron referenced, lust, adultery, and self-mutilation. So if you're visiting us this week because you came here for uh, the baby dedications, um, buckle up. Let's go. Uh, sorry. <laughs> sorry about that. Uh, To catch you up, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is, what he is doing is he's reinterpreting the Old Testament law uh, called the Torah, and he is placing himself right in the center of every law and regulation. He's revealing that these laws and regulations are not meant to merely control sort of our, our obedience or our lifestyle, but it's actually calling us to a higher way where we find our righteousness in Jesus himself. And he, what he's doing is he's revealing the heart of God that is behind all of the commands in the Torah, showing that God is is not interested merely in, in behavior, but in reaching the heart that is behind our behaviors. And so Jesus goes on, goes in the Sermon on the Mount to outline six examples of the incompleteness of the law and to carry us forward into a fuller view of life in his kingdom. And so we are working through each of these case studies week by week. Last week, we talked about anger and murder. Today we are talking about adultery, then next week it's divorce and vows, then retaliation, and finally what do we do with our enemies. And in each of these examples, Jesus is revealing God's heart and invites us not merely to behave like God, but to actually try to feel and act and live like God. And so that's the whole aim of this sermon series, and today we are looking at what Jesus has to say about marriage, sexuality, and the objectification of other people. So let's read starting in verse 27. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. That's heavy, isn't it? Now, I'm convinced that our culture is utterly confused about what to make of our sexuality. You see, we live in this strange age of empowerment, you know, where if something feels good, then it must therefore be good and celebrated. Women are encouraged to be fully, to fully express their sexuality and their allure, and we, we call this the new feminism. And at the same time, simultaneously, we live in the thick of this Me Too moment, where the evils of lust and adultery and objectification and power all collide and are being brought into the light right now. The words of Jesus actually cut to the very heart of all of these issues, and he offends everyone. 
And he calls all of us to a higher life that is neither based on repression nor indulgence, but rather a life of respect and love and freedom in the kingdom of God. And what's interesting is that the biblical worldview actually departs from many other sort of traditional religious views of sex and marriage by, in that the Bible is one of the only religious systems that really extols the beauty of marriage, while other philosophies and religions tend to, to encourage singleness and self-denial. And so the teaching of the Bible is actually that marriage is a means by which many or most of us will grow deeper in our faith and our spiritual maturity. God would actually say at the very beginning of this book that it is not good for man to be alone, which is one of the most self-evident expressions in the Bible. You know what happens when my wife is out of town? I become 13 again. I eat Doritos and play video games and wonder, when is she coming home to fix me? (laughs) Jesus is a single man who never married, never had a romantic relationship, and he actually is one of the people who most encourages marriage and holds it as a binding covenantal relationship that was designed designed and blessed by God himself. And of course... If you're not married, this does not mean that you are in any way inferior in God's kingdom. Because later in the New Testament, we see Jesus and Paul extolling the virtues of singleness and actually commending it to all people and saying, if you can be single, that's also an incredible way to live your life. The point is that the covenantal relationship of marriage is something that should be fought for and defended and that lust and adultery are this consuming fire that is bent on the destruction of marriage. And so Jesus, he points his people back to the Old Testament. He says in verse 27, you have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. He's referring back to the original top 10 list, the 10 commandments. And he points out number seven, one of the, one of the big ones, you shall not commit adultery. And at first glance, again, like last week, we can, many of us can look at that and think to ourselves, I mostly have that one down, you know? Uh, some of us better than others maybe, but, you know, I'm doing all right. That's a kind of a big betrayal to commit, and I haven't done that. But Jesus doesn't give us any breathing room before taking us deeper into the heart of the command. And every one of us, every human being, will be challenged by Jesus' words. He goes on to say, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And in this, in this sentence, Jesus sets a profound standard. I mean, can we really take Jesus' words seriously here? Is it even possible in the world that we live in, you know, a world that is full of alluring billboards and magazine covers at the checkout line and all kinds of stuff on Netflix and HBO, is it possible to live this command that Jesus gives to us? And so as we come to a text like this, for many of us, there's like a battle that goes on on the inside of us. We will either be tempted to write off Jesus' words as totally out of touch, impossible, and unrealistic, or we will feel the crushing weight of shame over every accidental glance or impulse. So I think it's important for us to recognize what Jesus is and is not talking about here. Jesus is not talking about simply the appreciation of beauty. There are beautiful people in the world, and it's okay for us to acknowledge the beauty of of people around us. Nor is he talking about the moment of temptation that is unavoidable. 
we have, to, we, we, we have to look at this difference between sort of lust and attraction. Because attraction is the instantaneous or involuntary response to seeing another person, a man or a woman, and having an impulse of desire. Um, summer is theoretically coming. I mean, we'll see, right? <laughs> um, which means that more and more of us are going to be coming out of hibernation and wanting to go outside. And, and for me, during the nice weather months, I love to just get away, get outside with Jesus and go on prayer walks. And one of my favorite spots to be able to go hang out is out at Frenchman's Bar on the Columbia River. I love it out there. Um, it's beautiful and it's quiet and it's a perfect space most of the year to be alone with Jesus. But I've discovered that in the summertime, it's a little bit counterproductive to go spend my quiet time with Jesus out there. If you, know, if you know what I mean. And even though I am deeply committed to my wife, and she is the most beautiful woman, I have eyes for her only. I would never dream of doing anything that would harm our marriage. There are these moments where in a flash, my impulse, my, my biological impulse, is to jeopardize everything that God has given me in this marriage relationship to have sex with some stranger that I know nothing about and I have no real feelings for. Because of this biological impulse, there are many in our culture today that would actually say that, see, we are hardwired against monogamy, much less marriage, right? Many of you have probably heard that, seen a TED Talk or two that, that makes that argument. But I think that this line of argumentation is a total and complete farce. If you want a, a little, you guys want to do a little neurobiology with me for a minute? Okay, I read this one time. I got a C in biology in high school, so take it with a grain of salt, okay? The biological truth is that the brain is wired for both sexual pleasure and sexual fidelity and commitment. And so in sex, your brain, it releases dopamine, which is like a, a, the neurochemical way of, of your body saying, this is awesome, we should do this more often. And dopamine, it starts to create these pathways that tell a person to do it again and again. And those neurochemical passages make it easier for us to do it again and again. And in addition to dopamine, the brain releases oxytocin, oxytocin and vasopressin, which are other neurochemicals that tell a woman that a man is hers and a man that a woman or and the man that the woman is his. It's a kind of bonding. It's a chemical bonding that is created every time a human has any sort of sexual experience. And so when you have sex with somebody that you are in a deeply committed relationship with in the, a covenanted marriage, your brain chemistry is actually telling you, this person is mine and I am theirs. We are bound to each other. And, it, and it, it's meant to draw us closer and closer. And so when we experience sexual gratification outside of sort of the biblical space that God has created us to navigate, this is where the feelings of guilt or dirtiness tends to arise because, um, because our body on a very biological level is actually saying, I'm confused. I thought I was supposed to be bound and here I am kind of untethered, which concludes our neurobiology lecture. Did that make any sense? Okay, yeah. Great. Uh, it's, more, it's better in practice than in theory. Anyway, Scott McKnight, he writes this. He says, Jesus prohibits illicit sexual encounters, whether physical or fantasy, because God has wired us for sexual fidelity and lifelong rugged commitments of love to one person. 
Hearts are wired to brains, and brains are wired to commitment. And so while I disagree that the biological impulses prove that marriage or monogamy are totally outdated and unnatural, I do believe that there is in each one of us a biological bent towards sin that we have to fight. But I think Jesus would make the clear distinction that the fight itself is not sin. And so when I walk down the street and in a flash, in a moment, I see someone attractive and I have an instantaneous flutter of desire, that's not sin, That's not adultery. That's actually what the Bible calls temptation. It's then what I do with that desire that determines whether or not it becomes sin. And the truth is, the the truth that many of us do not like to, to face is that we all have a say in how much temptation we allow into our lives, whether it's through the TV that we watch or the magazines that we read through which hours we choose to go to the gym, what software is on our devices. You see, we may not be able to control the moment of sexual impulse, but Jesus reminds us that we can control what we do with our sexual impulses. Jesus is talking about when we look at another person, and in this place, he's actually saying in context, a man looking at a woman, and he's saying that He's saying that when you look at a woman in order to get sexual fulfillment from her body, when, when Jesus uses the word look, he, it, it's better translated as gaze or leering at. It's making a mental note of the shape of a woman's body and storing it away. That is what Jesus means when he's talking about looking to lust. Here's how a theologian and philosopher Dallas Willard writes it. He says, Jesus says simply that those who look upon a woman for the purpose of lusting for her, which is using her visual presence as a means of savoring the fantasized act, has thereby committed adultery with her in his heart. In Jesus' words, there is a distinction between the momentary glance and the lustfully checking someone out. It's not the first look. It's what happens after that. It's the second or third look. It's the daydream. It's the fantasy later on. And so as we talked about last week, when we're talking about anger being this root sin from which all kinds of evil flows out of it, So also, the sin of lust is like a seed that is planted, and if it is allowed to grow, it produces all kinds of destruction. Again, going back to Dallas Willard, he writes, all of the elements of a genuine act of adultery, other than the overt movements of the body, are present in such a case. The heart elements are there. Usually the only thing lacking for overt action is the occasion. When the heart is ready, the action will occur as occasion offers. Just as the thief is the person who would steal if circumstances were right, so the adulterer is the one who would have wrongful sex if the circumstances were right. Usually that means if he or she could be sure it would not be found out. This is what Jesus calls adultery in the heart. Now, you know, if you're, if you're not, like, familiar with church world, and if this is the first time you've heard it, it may come across as God being kind of anti-sex or a prude or that sex is bad or gross or evil. But that's not, that's not what we read in the Bible, and that's not what we, what we experience at all. God created our bodies. He created sex. He created us to be visually and emotionally drawn to other people. Uh, Belgian psychotherapist Esther Perel. Any of you guys seen any of her TED Talks or know what I'm talking about? 
Probably not. You might have recognized if you saw it. But she famously teaches that our brains are wired for two things, safety and desire, and that these two things are often sort of at odds with each other uh, in our lives. And so at the very beginning of a relationship, when you're first starting to date somebody, your relationship is based primarily on desire. You see somebody and you think to yourself, she's cute. I think I'd like to go get coffee with her and get to know her a little bit better. And so you have this baseline of desire, and then you have to practice safety in the relationship. What if he doesn't show up to the date? What if we get in a fight? What if I discover that she's really into some kind of weird multi-level marketing thing and she's going to sell me a whole bunch of essential oils? (laughs) Careful, Marshall. (laughs) In those early days, you are fueled by desire and then you practice at safety. But then comes a day, eventually, in your relationship where you're standing before your family and your friends and you're committing your lives to each other, which is the ultimate safety, a covenanted, bonded, contractual relationship. And then for the rest of your life, you've got safety covered. Now you have to learn how to cultivate desire for one another. You have the safety, but over time, if not carefully stewarded, desire starts to drop off and wane. And as a culture, we are terrible at cultivating desire in a monogamous relationship. And so this is where the sin of lust begins to undermine the gift of marriage that God has given to many of us. We are trained, that, uh, we are trained to feed that need for desire by the objectification of other people. The problem is when we use other people for our own gratification. The problem is turning others, particularly women, into objects to be used in our imaginations or through our eyes. And this objectification, it actually dehumanizes everyone involved. It dehumanizes the subject of your lust. It it dehumanizes your spouse or your future spouse. It dehumanizes those who don't fit the cultural standard of, or definition of desirability. And it, the Bible says that it dehumanizes you. And we are, we are overcome by our flesh rather than ruling over our flesh. And our culture calls that freedom, but the Bible calls that bondage. There are innumerable ways for lust to work itself out. I'm going to name all of them. <laughs> totally kidding. Um, <laughs> But I mean, it's like you can go from glances to fantasy to strip clubs to romance novels and Fifty Shades of stuff. But the most obvious epidemic in our culture today is pornography. A few years ago, I was weekly volunteering in a middle school classroom with a bunch of like 13-year-old kids. And, uh, and I remember this one day being totally shocked as I'm sort of like walking through the rows, just seeing if there's anybody who needed help and seeing one of the boys looking at, at pornography on his phone underneath his desk. And I could not believe that that was happening. I was like, what? We're in school right now. I was shocked the first time I saw that. But then it happened again. And then it happened again, and then I realized that this is actually a really pretty common thing. You see, I grew up not in that world. Most of us probably didn't grow up with that kind of access. I grew up in the era of the shared family computer in the living room. You know what I mean? 
And so by God's grace, my, my exposure to pornography is extremely limited, not because I am like a holy, righteous young man with the self-control of Jesus himself, but because I was terrified of getting caught. And so, so I didn't go near it. But then there were other places where you could be exposed to pornography. I remember uh, we would go over to uh, my grandparents' house, not the grandparents that you guys all know that's part of this church, <laughs> And my grandfather had just posters of naked women all over his garage, and the fridge with the Capri Suns was in the garage. So I found myself needing Capri Suns a lot in the garage. And that was my early childhood exposure. And, um, and now we live as in a generation of people with immediate, unlimited access to HD videos in their pockets. And in the, over the last couple of years of increased social isolation, as we were all in lockdown and spread out and away from each other, we saw an explosion of internet pornography use. Uh, and we know that the people of God are not immune from it. This has immense power to form who we become. Now, statistics on the use of pornography are somehow both shocking and also totally not surprising. Here's a few stats that, that, that I discovered. Porn sites receive more regular traffic than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined each month. 64% of men admit to using porn at least monthly. The average age of first exposure to internet pornography is 11 years old. Let that sink in. Average. That's the average age. The 12 to 17-year-old age group is the largest consumer of internet pornography. And often, porn is described as uh, simply a man's problem, but the truth is that women are increasingly using it as well. One-third of porn viewers are women. 65% of millennial women, which uh, age 13, or 18 to 30, uh, admit to using porn at least a few times each year. 16% of single women say that they, they view porn at least monthly. And 25% of married women admit to the same. Porn is responsible for an like, incredible amount of infidelity in marriage, often leading to affairs. In fact, it's, one stat says that porn increases marital infidelity by 300%. Now, these stats are troubling, and even still, they, they say nothing of other forms of entertainment that elicit lust in the viewer. In our culture, lines around lust and pornography and entertainment are increasingly blurred, Right? And what would have been uh, even 10 or 20 years ago been considered shocking to us is now kind of everyday and mainstream. And I believe that Jesus might want to confront this and call us to something that's higher. Jesus calls us to love, not lust. Jesus is not trying to limit our freedom. He's calling us to actual, what, what the Bible calls true life, true freedom, true union with our spouse and with himself. I mean, just consider the difference between love and lust. In 1 Corinthians 13, we read this beautiful passage about what love is. 1 Corinthians says, love is patient. Love is willing to wait. Lust is immediate and short-lived. Love is self-giving and sacrificial, putting the needs of another before your own. Lust is self-gratifying, using another person for yourself. Love cherishes and upholds the deep value of the other, while lust dehumanizes and reduces another to an object. Love suffers long through sickness and difficulties and changes and aging and 
COVID weight gain. <laughs> Lust discards and moves on. Lust is the opposite of love. And love is the, the highest ethic. It is the center of all of God's commands. When Jesus was confronted by the religious leaders of his day and they asked him, what is the single greatest command? He said, love. Love the Lord with all your heart. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And everything else hinges on these things. Every single one of us knows that this is true. And, and this is what we long for. It's what we were created for. Love versus lust, this is a heart problem, not a sex problem. And so to demonstrate just how deeply destructive such sin is in our lives, in our families, in our culture, Jesus again uses this hyperbolic sort of story and reveals the severity to which we should go in combating the adultery of the heart. What should we do about lust? How do we deal with lust and adultery? I'm so glad you asked. Jesus has um, a remedy for us in verses 29 and 30. He says, if your right hand causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, again, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So who's ready for ministry time? Um, <laughs> Jesus says that self-mutilation is, is a preferable outcome than the ultimate self-destruction of lust. Now, this word here, stumble, is a really important one. If your right eye causes you to stumble, what does it mean to stumble? This word is not meant to sort of infer just sort of like a slip-up. Gosh, I got caught in a moment of temptation. I really didn't want to, but here I am, and I've done this thing. Now, this is more than a mere slip-up. It actually refers to enticing someone away, into the away from the road of salvation. Jesus doesn't have in mind a singular trip-up where one lusts and thinks that hell is therefore the only option. It's the only remedy. It's the only natural uh, uh, consequence. No, but he's talking about if someone whose life is wrecked by lust and sexual temptation. Jesus is not here inferring that sexual sin is itself unforgivable. He's rather using this example to show us that gouging out an eye or cutting off a hand, it, it's comparing the partial loss to total loss. The person who cuts off a hand loses one thing that is valuable to them, but the one who is enticed away into sexual sin ends up losing everything. New Testament theologian Frederick Bruner writes this. He says, the meaning of Jesus' challenge is to take decisive action against that habit, that thing, or that person that though pleasurable and perhaps seemingly indispensable for living is in fact ruining our lives. Jesus does not advise cautious, gradual action. He counsels surgery and immediately. He does not advise band-aids. He commands amputations. The point here is that fighting lust is so important to God that even if it requires the most extreme measures, it must be done and it must be done immediately. And the consequences of sin and lust are ultimately devastating and should be fought violently, even savagely. We do not manage our sin. We put it to death. We crucify it. Now, I want 
to be very clear here. Do not cut off your hand. <laughs> it's not going to fix it, okay? Don't pluck out your eye. That's not going to be the thing that actually fixes it. Jesus is speaking hyperbolically here. It's meant as a metaphor. Because if, you really wanted, if he really wanted you to take that kind of action to deal with this problem, there's another part of the body he might have actually... <laughs> <laughs> moving on. <laughs> we got to keep moving. Colossians 3 verse 5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. If we don't take this seriously, we are warned that we will stumble. And in, and in stumbling, we will experience what Jesus calls hell. And like how we worked, worked through it last week, Jesus is saying much more here than just that you'll end up going to an eternal torture chamber. He is warning that we will experience the consequences of evil here and now as we give ourselves over to it. Lust is destructive. Lust crushes intimacy. Lust destroys trust. Lust desensitizes sexual fulfillment. And in the age of pornography, we're seeing that even impotence among young men is at an epidemic level right now. Lust will cost you your marriage and your family. The sin of lust will ultimately cost you intimacy with God, what you were ultimately made for. And this is why we want to have the posture of Job. In 31 verse 1, he says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. The truth is that the call of Jesus is extraordinarily difficult, but it is not impossible. You can become a person who is free from the bondage and devastation of lust and adultery, but it will cost you. And Jesus calls us to drastic action. So I want to land the plane with just a couple of suggestions of some areas that we might consider gouging out our eyes and cutting off our hands, areas where we might take some, some real action to limit the power of lust in our lives. And the first, I think, is technology. Jesus' words should cause us to really reevaluate how we relate to our devices. When I was growing up, if I wanted to look at pornography, it would have been extraordinarily difficult and risky. But that's not so much today. The availability of porn and other highly sexual material is right in our pockets all the time. And so what kind of limits do you need to set on your technology, on your phone, what kind of accountability software would be helpful to put on your devices? Does your phone need to charge in another room at night so that you don't sleep with it right next to your bed? Jesus calls us to radical obedience and purity, such that demands real sacrifice, real changes in our lifestyle. And I want to like I, I want to exhort parents, especially parents. What are the rules that you have for your kids' use of technology? If you're putting a smartphone or a tablet in your child's bedroom without any safeguards, you are putting something exceptionally destructive and dangerous in their hands. Lust and pornography, as many people in this room can tell you from personal experience, are lifelong struggles, are slave masters. And my prayer is that these slave masters would not reach into my kids' lives. Amen? Or how about our, our uh, uh, habits around entertainment? What are the types of things that you watch or listen to? And this is actually a slippery area. The arts are a very tricky spot. I don't want to stand up here and make clear rules about what is or isn't okay for a Christian to be watching on TV. 
Because that's not really what, it's all about the heart right now, right? But as followers of Jesus, we have to recognize that there are some places that are totally off limits for Christians. Of course, pornography is objectively evil, but what do we do with all of this stuff on Netflix and HBO? These arts spaces, they're gray, but what would have even a decade ago been clearly black and white recently has just, we've allowed it into our homes and into our lives. Or even just some everyday stuff that we want to put some, some safeguards around. Maybe this affects what time that you go to the gym uh, when you work out. Maybe it affects which, your choices of which beaches you go to in the summertime. Savi Island's beautiful, but dangerous, is it not? If you're single or you're dating someone, are you putting clear boundaries in your relationships? How are you winning the battle before things heat up? Or in your workplaces, how does this affect how you work with the opposite sex? I mean, we, we are in, right now in a generational sort of like backlash against what was commonly called the Billy Graham rule. You might have heard it when because uh, Mike Pence was all about it and stuff a few years ago. But, you know, some people put strict rules on, I will never be alone with a woman ever under any circumstances that isn't my spouse. And, you know, many of us are recognizing that that rigidity was probably a little bit problematic and left women out of a lot of opportunities. But what are the safeguards that we put in making sure that we don't allow our hearts and our eyes to wander in the workplaces? Or back in 1989, uh, a movie called When Harry Met Sally popularized this question of can men and women be friends without having some kind of sexual like, desire and connection between them? And I think that, that that's like a really, feels at this point like a really outdated question, but I think it's a healthy thing for us to examine is, are our friendships leading us into spaces that our hearts don't belong? And I think that Jesus would call us to examine that and address it. What are the, the safeguards that we want to put in our lives? But finally, the last thing, the way that we gouge out our eye and cut off our hand, the most important thing I think that we need to do is doing this together, recognizing that we are not alone in this fight. What the enemy wants so badly is for you to feel like you are struggling all by yourself. Tragically, many people, even in this room, are enslaved to pornography and lust in the privacy of your own homes, thinking that you are totally alone in this fight, thinking that if you were honest with somebody else around you, they would think that you are evil or gross or weak. And as we look at these statistics about the fact that one-third of users of pornography are women, and yet probably the, the, the people who are least likely to talk about it in a church-type setting are women, women increasingly feel alone in this struggle. Like, if you were honest with your struggle, people would think that you were dirty. You are not. You are a sister. You are one of us. And we are here to fight alongside you. And so I think that one of the best ways for us to take a knife to our sin is through the discipline, the act of confession. 1 John chapter 1 says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. You see, the good news is that in Christ, God did not stand at a distance judging us and stewing over our sin. No, he draws close he forgives, he cleanses, and he heals us. Don't let shame keep you from God. 
But beyond confessing our sin to God, we are called a step further to confessing to one another. This is how we break the power of guilt and shame in our lives. In James chapter 5, we read, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. When we confess what is happening in the secret, we break the power of sin and shame. We bring in an ally who can fight this fight with us, and we cut off the shame uh, as we find love and acceptance in the body of Christ. James says that when we confess our sins to each other, we then go to the next step and we pray for each other so that we might be healed, not just forgiven, but restored meaning that sin has a destructive effect of our lives and the healing is not only about breaking the power of desire, but of healing the consequences of our sin. You don't have to suffer alone. The people of God are not here to condemn, but actually meant to heal each other. Amen?